Morning, HCC. Today we're going to be reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be finishing up in our sermon series, reading the words of King Solomon. And next week, we're going to be in the Psalms. I'm sorry, not the Psalms. Next week, we're going to be doing the parables and continuing on with uh, the parables of Jesus. Dave Cook started that sermon series last week. And if you missed his sermon, it was an excellent sermon. Uh, You can always go online if you miss a sermon to our Facebook page, Harrisonville Community Church's Facebook page, and you can catch up on any of the sermons that you may have missed. Dave gave an amazing sermon on the parables. There were multiple things that I had to make sure to write down because I hadn't heard those things before. Very good stuff, and my pen uh, ran out during the service, so I had to make sure to get a pen afterwards and make sure I wrote those down for the future. Um, So if you missed that sermon, it's a great sermon to go back and read on. Today we'll be going back to Ecclesiastes for one more week, um, then the parables. After that, I want you to start praying about a sermon series we're going to be doing in December. We're going to be talking about the image of God. In the first week of the series, we're going to talk about what it means to bear the image of God. And then as we go further on in the sermon series, we're going to look at some of the passages which talk about the image of God. And the primary passage which talks about the image of God is Genesis 1 and 2, and it has all to do with our gender. And as Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, God didn't just create human beings and give them his image. What he does is he creates a man and a woman and gives them his image. Adam in the Hebrew literally means man. It literally means genetically XY. Adam is who he created, and Eve means mother and not birthing person. It means woman. It means XX. And God creates these two gendered people, and gender is the way that God gives them to bear his image. As they come together, one gender of the man, one gender of the woman, XX and XY, they come together, and God blesses them with a blessing that he gives to no other uh, relationship of people And that is a blessing to create life. That is his image in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. If you look at in the first two chapters of Genesis, what is the image of God? It's that of creator. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants, the trees, the seas, the land, the night, the day, everything. And then he turns to XX and XY and says, you bear my image in a special way, just like God has created all that there is. Now going forward, this relationship, these genders will create all that will come next. And if you love people, you will love gender. If you love people, you will love the man and the woman. You'll love male and female because that is where all of God's people come from. That is a relationship that uniquely bears his blessing. And that is incredibly countercultural. And so I want you to start praying for that today because there's nothing more that Satan would like for you than to follow the masses and the the mob thinking and just go along with he and him, she and her being in a basket of other opportunities and options, just more of what's in there, and they are different. And to be a man and a woman is to uniquely bear God's image. And I want you to start praying for that because turns out Satan's got a real axe to grind on this topic. And a few years ago, we, I would have never thought that Satan would be able to so efficiently devalue both men and women, both genders at the same time. But he is and he has. And there are going to be people in our lives who begin to struggle with deceptions of these deceptions of Satan. It's going to happen. And it, we might not have seen it coming a few years ago, but it is here. And 
You might have people in your family who have been struggling. You might have young children who are going to ask questions about this or struggle with it themselves, and we need to talk about God's Word. And God's Word, this is why I love being a pastor, this is why I love talking about God's Word, because it is so wise, and it's so refreshing, and you go out in the world, and you have to put your pronouns in your bio and pretend that there's all these different things out there, and then you come back, and you read God's Word, and it's so refreshing, and it's so clear, and it's such wise guidance. And it's amazing, as you look at it, how far Satan can get us and our, our culture, how far he can get us off of that track. But then you go back and you read it, and it's just so wonderful, and it's so beautiful, and so powerful. And so we're going to be reading about that, we're going to be talking about that, and I want you to be praying about that, because when, as we explode Satan's lies with God's word, the truth, he, he's, I don't know how else, he's going to be pissed. All right? He's going to... And who knows what he, got, he does, right? Who knows what plans he's got as we blow up his lies on his special pet projects. And so I just want you to be praying about that and preparing your heart to hear God's word. Maybe you yourself have been out there in the corporate world or whatever, and you, you, these people and that, what's, what's the difference between their relationship and our relationship? And what's wrong if they just do? Maybe you've been influenced by that. So I want you to be praying about your heart as you Come and prepare to hear God's word, and I want you to be praying about uh, those uh, who you might be able to spread God's word to as well. Um, it's very easy to get uh, frustrated uh, with people as they um, follow Satan, and it's easy to hate people as well, and we don't want to do that either. We want to have the word of God, we want to have the truth of God, and yet still be able to present that in love, with God's love, God's truth with God's love. And so we're going to be talking about that in December. And today we're continuing on our sermon series, Think Big, as we're finishing it up. It's good to remember why we're looking at this book. One of the things that I think is interesting is unbelievers, they criticize believers as being small-minded, small-thinking people who are unable to think big enough to grasp, you know, grasp uh, the truth. Believers are small-minded people oftentimes, characterized as small-minded people who just can't think big enough to break free from the trappings of their religious upbringing. And here King Solomon gives us the exact opposite perspective. King Solomon tries to put on some blinders and live life apart from God. You see, he actually wants to find meaning apart from... He wants to turn from the Lord, and Solomon does, and he looks for meaning and purpose in all of the things under the sun. He tries to live just like the unbelievers do. And what he finds is that He's got to think bigger to find meaning and purpose. All of the things that unbelievers are thinking about is too small to satisfy him, and he realizes he's got to think bigger than the unbelievers around them. He's got to be a believer to find hope and meaning and purpose in life. And if you're someone who's ever woke up in the morning and said, I don't want to go on. Uh, my career, it's just not enough to fulfill me. Or my spouse, they'll... They'll never, I'll never have the perfect marriage. They'll never be able to support me the way I wanted them to. Or my family, my, they're just not enough to fulfill me. Or money, the pursuit of wealth. Like none of these things are a reason to get up in the morning. I don't want to go on. If that's you, you're actually following wisdom to its logical conclusion. You're on that path. None of these things actually are big enough to satisfy us. And we're reading about King Solomon, who's the wisest man to ever live. To give you a little background, he was king in Israel 3,000 years ago. 
He's the wisest man to ever live. In the context, he's the richest man to ever live. And we're looking at his pursuit for meaning and purpose apart from God. And the book of Ecclesiastes is him showing his work as he goes and looks for that apart from God. And his logical conclusion is the same. If you've ever felt that way, his logical conclusion is exactly the same as yours. None of this is worth it apart from God. And if you've ever felt that way, I just want to encourage you to not stay there, but continue to follow it to its logical conclusion and turn your eyes to the Lord and to Jesus Christ where you will find meaning and you will find purpose. And as we've read in Ecclesiastes where Solomon rests is that it's the relationship with the Lord that brings meaning and purpose to everything. And without him, nothing is meaningful, but with him, everything Every single thing is meaningful with the Lord. And so today we're going to look at Solomon a little more as he shows a little more of his work, as he looks in other places for meaning and purpose apart from God. Starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we'll be reading in verse 16. And Solomon is going to look for meaning and purpose in finding fairness, justice, and righteousness in this life, of course, apart from God. Verse 16 says, Moreover, I saw under the sun, that's Solomon's key phrase, it's a poetic description of saying apart from God, where is God? He is in the heavens. He is above the sun. Solomon, whenever he says under the sun, and it occurs uh, very frequently in this throughout Solomon's writing, he's talking about apart from God, under the sun. I saw apart from God, under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And Solomon looks to the judge's bench, the judge's courtroom, and says, you'd expect there to be justice there, but what does he find in the place of justice? He says, what he found is wickedness. And the Bible doesn't promote anarchy, right? As we look at our systems and we see that they're not perfect, it doesn't promote anarchy, but in the wisdom of the Scripture, and we'll get to why it doesn't promote anarchy in a moment, but in the wisdom of the Scripture, it does understand the complexity of life, and even, even though we're not to just tear it all down because it's imperfect, we are to recognize that it is imperfect and adjust our expectations, hopes accordingly. And here he looks at the system. He says, the system is corrupt. These people who, they spend their life, they train, they go to school to bring justice to the world. They're wicked themselves. And how often do you get excited? I know I did. How often do you get excited? We've got to get this person in office. We've got to get them in. They're going to appoint this person and that person. We've got to bring them in to power so that they can fix it. And then they get in there. And it's time for the vote and the Supreme Court. It's, it's four to four. And that person that we were so excited about, they were the ones who were going to bring the justice. They were the ones who were going to turn the tide and bring the right vote. They go the other way. They vote on the wrong side. We just had a vote in 13 people who voted and said they were going to do this thing. They got us to vote for them. They went and told us about what they're going to do, and they went and did the opposite again. It's incredible. Now, I'm not saying that voting doesn't matter. We should definitely vote. We live in a democracy. We have the incredible opportunity that almost nobody throughout human history has, which is to look at two people and say, or more, and say, 
which of these is going to be the most godly person? We should take that very seriously and we should get out and vote. But as you look to the answer to wickedness, you see this person in leadership leading our country down the wrong way and you think we've got to get the other person in there. You've lost the plot. I'm not saying that one person is not better than the other. There are significant differences, but they're both sinners. And you're going to replace one sinner with a different one. Might be worth voting for, because it might be significantly different, but it's not going to bring the justice that we really need. And I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to make politics or judges or justice an idol and put that in, in my view and put my hopes on that. This person's going to fix it. The answer to this wicked politician isn't this other sinful politician. The answer to this wicked politician is Jesus Christ. And that's who we need. That's who our world needs. Until we start following Jesus Christ, it's not going to get to where we need to be. And until Jesus Christ himself returns, it's never going to be where we want. And the unbelievers are fixated on justice in this world because they don't believe in another one. And look at the kind of damage they cause. They got to get involved. They got to meddle with everything. Because they got to, these people who are just as focused, they got to make sure to fix it all now. And they themselves are sinful and foolish. And as they rush in to try to make a bunch of changes, and we're going to take from him and take from this person, we're going to make this person and press that person to free this person, they just create bigger messes. And Solomon looks at that and says, what a foolish endeavor that is. What a foolish endeavor justice is apart from God. Because we are all sinful. We're all flawed. And Solomon tells us if we want justice, if we want righteousness, then we've got to think bigger. We've got to think bigger than that if we just get this person in there, if we just get that person in there. Because all we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for disappointment if we idolize these different people, if we idolize these different leaders. Solomon says we want righteousness. We don't look to the justice's bench. No matter how fancy his robe is, no matter how good their commercials are, no matter how good that slogan was during the campaign, we've got to look to Jesus and think bigger. And then Solomon goes to another place to look for justice. This one's a little more personal for me. He looks to the pastor this is in the place of righteousness. That's the church. Now, in his day, the church and the state were completely commingled. The religious leaders were the political leaders. That's why this is both in the same sentence. In our country, we've tried to split that up. But for him, they go hand in hand. He starts off in the place of justice, there's wickedness in the justice system. And then he goes to the church. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And that's an indictment of all of us here, primarily me. And if you've ever gone to church and looked around and said, you know, the people around me, turns out they're not perfectly trustworthy at all. In fact, this person said that and that person did this. If you've ever gone to church and looked up front and said, and the guy up front, he seems to be the biggest hypocrite of all of them. If you've ever said that, if you ever have any relatives or friends who've come to church and said that and said, I'm not coming back, 
What a bunch of hypocrites. As though they've gained some sort of new insight and new understanding that no one else has thought about. That Now I'm going to read. Why haven't all these people noticed this? Why aren't they rejecting God? Because none of these people are perfect. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. I'm leaving. If anybody thought they gained some new insight with that thought, the Bible is one step ahead of them again by 3,000 years. Solomon's ahead of them. That's not a new thought. That's an old observation. In fact, the most famous pastor of all, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15, he refers to himself as chief of all sinners. What a terrible hypocrite. Why would anyone listen to this man? Well, if you thought that the church was about being perfect, if you thought that the people around you are coming here because they think that they're perfect, some of them might be, but for the most part, they're not. Actually, the church is not a place of perfection. It's a place of grace. And if you thought that you weren't perfect, or I'm sorry, if you thought that you were perfect, I got news for you. Our church, if it was perfect, stop being perfect the moment you walked in. None of us are perfect. In fact, all of us need grace. That's why the Apostle Paul can be a pastor and admit that he's a sinner because what the Apostle Paul is preaching is not primarily God's commandments. It's the Lord's grace. Now, as Paul writes in Romans 6.1, it's not like we just throw up our hands and say, fine, we'll just do whatever we want. No, we're going to follow. The Apostle Paul talks about the commandments a lot. We're going to try to follow these commandments. More importantly, we're going to let these commandments reveal to us the sin in our heart so that we learn to trust and depend not on ourselves but on Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing to talk about as we talk about God's commandments. When we talk about bearing God's image and we talk about gender, the end result is not that we want everybody to conform although we certainly would like to all be conformed to Christ, the bigger thing is that we all repent and receive the Lord's grace and forgiveness because we all need it. And if we preach morality, well, you don't conform, so you're out, and you don't conform, so you're out. If the Apostle Paul were to do that, then he would be a hypocrite because as hard as he tries, he doesn't conform, and so he'd be out. He says, I'm the chief of all sinners. There's a way that I, I'm, I'm not able to conform myself to Jesus Christ. And we try. But even more important is that we repent. And if you preach morality, if you say the end result is that you got to be perfect and you got to be perfect and you got then you will be a hypocrite. If I stand up here and I preach those things, I will be the biggest hypocrite. The only way to avoid being a hypocrite is to actually preach something different, which is repentance. The only way to actually not be a hypocrite is to preach the opposite, that I am the chief of all sinners and I, I need the Lord's grace. And I found it in Jesus Christ. And the best way to lead people to Jesus is not to talk about the law and how you follow the law. Actually, the best way to lead people to Jesus Christ is to talk about the law and how you break it and how you find forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul does. That's the purpose of his letters. I try to follow his example. I think the best way that I can pastor a church is not up and, and if I ever do come across as holier than thou, I repent of that. In fact, all the sermons that I give, they're always because God has spoken to me about that sin and convicted me of that sin. When I talk about sin, 
Because almost always because I've connected with it on a personal level, and the Lord has convicted me of this passage, and I need to repent and change. And so I try not to preach holiness. What I try to preach is repentance and model that. The best way I think I can lead people to Christ is say, I'm a sinner too, and I've found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I've been freed, as we sang earlier. I've been freed by Jesus Christ. That's where I found my salvation and forgiveness. And that would be the best way, I think, for you to do it as well. Because people, they always want to talk about God's commandments. They always want to talk about Satan's pet projects. Because that's what he's doing in the culture and community. Nobody ever comes up to me and says, what do you think about the grace of God? Nobody's ever said that. I get tons of people who come and say, you know, this person's living with that person. They're doing this. And they seem like they're happy. What do you think about that? I mean, that's almost always the question I get. I almost never get a different question. Almost never. Say this person and that person are together. The church says it's wrong. The culture says it's right. What do you say? And instead of preaching morality, and we're going to talk about this as we go sermon through sermon through sermon. I'm going to talk about it all the time. Instead of preaching morality, you want to take that opportunity that the Lord has presented and point it to grace. Don't deny what the word says, but then follow it to the end. Yeah, the Bible says that that is sin, and I sin too all the time. I find my forgiveness in Jesus Christ. How do you find yours? You can get to the gospel in two sentences from any commandment that the unbeliever wants to talk about. Turn it from the command. Don't argue about it. I've never changed anyone's mind arguing about the commandment. Yeah, the Bible says abortion is a sin, and the culture says it's not, and I think it's a sin because this. I've never gotten done with that conversation. I'd suddenly been like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've suddenly changed my stance on abortion. It's never happened. Never happened. I don't talk about the command. I don't even bother. I affirm it and move on to the grace of God because the Holy Spirit, if he's active in their lives, he's going to be telling them about the commandment himself and convicting them of that. I'll trust in God's spirit. What I'll do is I'll talk about the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the Bible says that that's a sin. I sin all the time, no matter how hard I try. I find my forgiveness in Jesus Christ. How do you find yours? Would you like to find your forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Would you like to come to church? Would you like to read God's word? If we preach morality, we'll be hypocrites. But if we preach about Jesus, it's the only way we won't be a hypocrite if we preach repentance. And any church that stops talking about Jesus one way or the other becomes completely pointless and completely vain. As we've been reading Ecclesiastes, as Solomon goes and he looks at all these things under the sun, he says they're all vanity. Trying to find meaning and purpose in, in this apart from God is total vanity. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's worth nothing. It's here one day, gone the next, completely pointless. And any church, which any pastor who stands up and preaches anything other than Jesus is a terrible pastor and is not worth listening to. And there's no point in even being here if we're not going to talk about Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we're the most pitiful of all people. If we've come to church to waste an hour and a half of our time to listen to something inspiring or listen to something positive apart for Christ, it's a breath, it's a vapor, it's pointless. It's here one day, gone the next. You can find great inspiration that never mentions Jesus' name. 
And that'll give you some pep for the day, for the week, for the month, maybe until you die, but that's not very long. It's a breath. It's here one day, gone the next. And only what God does is eternal, as Solomon says here in in chapter 3, somewhere between verse 9 and verse 15. I didn't memorize that verse. I think. Only what God does is eternal. And to point to anything other than Jesus, even if it sounds great, even if it sounds positive, is completely and totally worthless. What a waste of time. We're the most pathetic of people if we get together in a building and sing and talk and don't point to Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of churches that do. Here's one from Kansas City that my relatives go to, and they send me all that. Some of Sarah's relatives go there as well, and they send us material from their church. It's a completely Christless church. And what they do is they sound so good, and I'm going to read it to you so you can tell what this is and why it's bad, because it sounds so perfect. It sounds so positive. And, they, and I love this pastor of this church, too, because I call him on the phone, and he's so gracious to answer my questions and to clarify their beliefs so that they can re- I can represent them accurately. He's a nice guy, but he's misleading people straight to hell. (laughs) Here's the book. They want me to read this to my children. I wouldn't let my kids come near this toxic garbage. I am filled with light. Talk about vanity. Anything apart from Jesus is vanity. Any pastor who stands up, if you're looking at any pastor for righteousness, if any pastor presents himself as a source of righteousness, he's vain. He's nuts. He's deceived by Satan. He's not light. You're not light. That's crazy. Jesus is light. It's antichrist to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. This isn't harmless, this is satanic. Jesus is the light. God is the light. Not me. If I start believing I'm the light, I'm in real trouble. If you start believing you're the light, you're real trouble. And if you start believing you're the light, your spouse is going to tell people behind your back, he's nuts. (laughs) I live with this person. What a deception to think we're the light. I am one with God. I got news for you. You ain't one with God apart from Jesus. You're one with Satan apart from Jesus. I know that's intense. That's the truth. You better think about it and deal with reality because otherwise you're deceived by Satan. You're one with him. I am made in the image of the Most High. Praise the Lord. But the image has been broken. That's the whole point of the Bible. He made us in God's image. We blew it. Now we're broken. Now our default is not to God, it's actually to Satan, and we need Jesus to get us back right with God. I feel the divine spark of light, comfort, and warmth within me. Boy, if you don't got Jesus, then you're following a demon if you feel divine spark and warmth with you, because Jesus is God, and if we don't have Jesus, we don't have a divine spark at all. So what kind of spirit is in us? That's creepy. Faith is the door through which Jesus speaks to me. Yeah, absolutely. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. In my light, I know what is right for me. I'm sorry. In my heart, I know what is right for me. Boy, if that's not the most satanic thing I've ever heard. In my heart, I know that I am flawed and I need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's, not, that's a Christless church. 
And that's very positive things, sounding things, but it's very evil. And pastors, too, who are in Christian churches, that proclaim they're in a Christian church, they can be just as off. And what we need to do is make sure that whoever we're following, that they're leading us to Jesus Christ. And whoever we've got our faith in, it can't be in a church, it can't be in a denomination, and it can't be in a pastor. I'm telling you, I... All the great pastors who've fallen over the last 10 years. I love the, I listen to these people. They inspire me. They blew it. I, I love them. I still listen to some of them. One of my favorite pastors is Mark Driscoll. He's fallen. His church imploded in Seattle. 20,000 people gone. You can't idolize this man. He's no more sinful than I am. Bill Hybels in Chicago, great pastor. James McDowell, all these guys. We found out Ravi Zacharias. What a great man. I listen to that guy all the time. We can't have our faith in a person. The only pastor who's worthwhile is someone who points us to Jesus because they're, if we're looking for them to the place of righteousness, ultimately we're just going to find wickedness. And me too. So you got to be looking to the Lord. Solomon says, I look to the justice, I look to the judges. I looked at the pastors. I didn't find it here, and I didn't find it there. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Billy Graham, one of the greatest pastors of all time, one of the greatest evangelists of all time. If there's anybody who could have gotten prideful and thought about how great he was, it would have been him. And as he's getting gotten extremely old and elderly and frail and was at his deathbed, he said this. That is awesome. It's so interesting that the condemned are the ones who think they're righteous. And the people who are saved are the ones who admit that they're wicked. The only way to be found innocent is to plead guilty and to trust in Jesus Christ. And do you hear the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin? That's a great thing. It means God is active in your life. That means he's trying to deepen his relationship with you by driving you deeper into Jesus Christ, who he is. That's, that's who he is. The more you feel convicted in your heart of your sin, praise God. Because the more God loves you and wants to save you. The more guilty you feel about your sin is actually a good thing because that will drive you to the Lord to relieve that guilt. He is your Savior. He has forgiven you. The more you trust in him, the more you know him. To know God is to know that he is a Savior. That's who he is. That's what he does. The more you know you need saving and the more you know you, your Savior is Jesus, then the closer you are to God. And if you don't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, if you don't feel conviction of your sin, 
that's a very dangerous place to be in. And I pray that God pricks your heart. And I pray that God begins to speak to you. Because if he doesn't speak to you now, he will speak to you one day face to face. And if you don't hear it now, you will hear it then. But by then it will be too late. So it's a good thing to hear that now. And the Lord will judge. I don't need the Lord to come and tell me I'm wicked. I know it. I turn to Jesus for my forgiveness. Verse 18, Solomon says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are beasts. I've heard that people use that in a negative term. Like, are you telling me this life is just a test? Or are you saying that tests aren't important? Yeah, this life is a test. It's the most important test that it can be. It's a test between good and evil. Are you going to pass? Because that sounds like a pretty big deal. I mean, basically everything, every entertainment, every story we've ever written is about that topic. Every movie you've ever watched is basically about that topic. It's a pretty big deal. If it's a test about physics, then yeah, that wouldn't be the most important thing in the world, would it? But if it's a test about good and evil, well, I don't know. That might be worthwhile. That might be a worthwhile test to take and to pass. And Solomon says it's a test. And what God wants to see is that what God wants us to see is that we are beasts. Now, I was a biology major in college, and I went to college. And because of the influence of Christianity and Western culture, for hundreds and hundreds of years, we actually haven't included human beings in the animal kingdom. Because why would we? We have the teaching of the Lord here. We were created with God's image because of our soul, because of our spirit. We're not in the same category. And so we have included. And then I go to college, and evolution came along in the year 1865. And, and all, uh, you know, uh, Darwin says uh, we're, all we are is uh, evolved advanced beasts. And the professor would stand up and say, oh, those silly Christians, they think that human beings aren't a part of the animal kingdom, those creationists. Ha, 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 ha. Well, if you didn't read the Bible, then you'd think that that's what Christians teach. But again, the Bible's 3,000 years ahead of them. Once again. The Bible recognizes that, yes, apart from God, we are just beasts. That's what God wants us to see. Apart from him, we are barbaric. We are doomed apart from the Lord. He is our Savior. If we want to be saved, we need him. Verse 19 says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. We didn't need Darwin to tell us that. Solomon told us 3,000 years ago. He was a wise man. He was a little bit ahead of Darwin. And what Solomon is doing, he's riding in his chariot and he's looking at his royal horses next to him. He's got his royal hounds and he's got his royal servants over here. And he says, they're all going into the same hole. They're all going to be eaten by the same worms. Solomon's king of, king of the country. You know, over Netflix, we tried to watch the, uh, the, the show The Crown on Netflix. We didn't get in very far. I think we might have only finished the first or second episode. It's a story of King George IV, I believe. And the, 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 the thing opens up and King George is, you know, king of the country every, over everyone, the richest, just like Solomon, the richest, wealthiest man in the whole thing. Everybody wants to be him. Everybody wants to change places with him. And in the first episode, he dies right away. And he goes from being the most envied person in the country to someone that even the poorest, sickest person wouldn't want to change places with in a day. That's all it takes is a day. And King Solomon is noticing the same thing. This dog 
eats his vomit and that horse, and then my servant over here and me, like, we're all going to the same pit. What advantage of it is it? And without the Lord, we're all going to end up the same. And what does it matter then if we try to be the best people we can, if we spend every day, every minute, every waking moment trying to be the best people we can, we're going to end up getting eaten by the same worms as the murderer, then that seems to be pointless. He says it's all vanity. It's all habel, the Hebrew word for vanity. It's all habel. It's all pointless. It's here one day, gone the next, and without the Lord, what's the point of this? What's the point of even seeking justice in the judge, in the pastor, in our own life? What's the point of it? All go to one place. All are from dust and to all dust return. And COVID got everybody thinking a little bit of their mortality, got people a little bit crazy. Here in this country, we're not faced with our own mortality on a daily basis. Turns out COVID is a little more dangerous than other things, not a ton. It's actually a lot less dangerous than a lot of things like heart disease and cancer, still. I got people pretty upset. It did lower the life expectancy a little bit. But you know what didn't lower at all is the death rate. It's still at 100%. It's still at 100%. Even if we pass COVID, we're going to fail something else, and it's going to be over soon. We better think bigger than COVID. Better think about not how I'm going to survive COVID. We better think how I'm going to survive the Lord's judgment. Because we're all going into that same hole. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 14, the psalm says, The wise person has eyes in his head, and the fool walks in darkness, yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Solomon might be smart, I might be stupid, but we're going to the same place. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happened to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Why did I spend all this time? It's, and I said in my heart that this is also vanity. First Peter 1 says, for all flesh is like the grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Another great Fernando Ortega song. If you're looking for something to listen to on Spotify, Psalms 39 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made me my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a breath. And to contemplate our own mortality is incredibly wise, and it's deep wisdom because it leads us to the Lord. And here in this country, turns out, I didn't realize this, apparently nobody had been thinking about it at all. Because as soon as the first threat comes up, everyone just panics. Praise the Lord that he got our attention. Because apparently we were the biggest fools around. It's coming fast. What are we going to do? Whether it's COVID or not. Praise God for this gentle pandemic which got our, us awake. I'm not saying it's not a big deal. I'm not saying it hasn't killed some people we love. I don't want to be insensitive. I'm just saying, praise the Lord, because if he wanted to get our attention, he did it in just about the gentlest way possible. Wake up, America! You don't have much time, and you better start thinking about me and stop thinking about your career. Stop thinking so small, and your money, and your career, and your house. You better start thinking about me. Not because the Lord wants to punish us, but because he wants to save us.
COVID or not, we've got a few hand breaths. It goes so fast. I've been preparing for my midlife crisis for years, and it's already here. (laughs) That 1984 Corvette is still for sale in Independence, Missouri. $5,000. Going back to chapter 3, verse 11. Who knows whether this, verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. Now this is King Solomon again showing his work apart from God. The gospels are stories about the presence of Jesus. Ecclesiastes is a story about the absence of Jesus. And here King Solomon comes back to the Lord at the end of the book. We don't want to take this verse out of context and say Solomon didn't know that the Bible says we don't even know. No, this is Solomon apart from God looking for it. And Solomon wants somebody who comes back from the grave to tell him it's real because how does he know? How can he know? I remember the show Ghost back in like, what, 1989 or something, Whoopi Goldberg and Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. Got a little creepy there. But it, it was like, it was so powerful because someone came back and told her it's real. Her husband or ever who died came back and said it's real. Don't we want that? Don't don't we? Solomon wanted that. He wanted somebody like that. He wanted one of those. One of my favorite movies is uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And uh, it's about King Arthur going on a quest for the Holy Grail. And at the beginning of the movie, he goes around trying to get the different lords and knights around him to join his round table on this quest. He goes with his posse up to a castle to recruit the king to come join him. He says, hello, I'm King Arthur. And they say, guard on the top of the tower says, what do you want? And he says, I'm on the quest for the Holy Grail. Would your lord like to come join me on the quest for the Holy Grail? And the guy on the top of the tower turns to the guard and says, he's on a quest for a Holy Grail. What do we tell him? The guard next to him says, well, tell him we've already got one. The Holy Grail is the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. And the guard looks down at King Arthur and he says, we've already got one. And King Arthur says, you've already, he says, they've already got a Holy Grail. Well, that's what Solomon wanted. He wanted one of those. And thank God that we've got one. We've got Jesus. We don't have to wonder like Solomon did. Solomon, at the end of his life, he's got no more details other than he's got to live in faith. We've got so much more details. We've got a man who came to earth and died on the cross and rose from the grave and was witnessed at one point by and one time alone by 500 people who then went out and told everybody about it and wrote about it so we don't have to wonder. We can know. We can know that God exists because of Jesus. He's gone there and come back. We don't have to wonder what God is like. We can look to Jesus. We don't have to wonder if there's an afterlife. We don't have to wonder if we're all going down into the same pit forever because we've got somebody who came back from it. We've got Jesus. I don't have to wonder what God can say. I can look at Jesus Christ and hear the words of the Lord. And here's Solomon at the end of his life. The best that he had as he returns to the Lord was to trust in the Lord's future Coming and salvation, whatever that might look like, and praise God that we've got Jesus. And we can look back. So many people are like, oh, if God would only speak to me, well, then I'd believe. Well, King Solomon was saying the same thing. If I only knew, if we could only have someone come back from the grave, well, then I'd know. And turns out we've got one, and he does speak to us. He wrote it down for us. And we can know by looking at Jesus Christ. And the same event happens to everybody 
But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to bring dead people to life. Ecclesiastes verse 33, So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Solomon, apart from Christ, says there's no point. It's all vapor. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1 says, But all this I had laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns the oath. This is an evil. This is an evil. Even apart from God, he can see that. What point is it if you go to church and try to be a good person and follow God if you just end up in the same hole? This is evil and all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness. What a bunch of nuts. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. I'm telling you, I'm watching TV this past year. Solomon pegged it 3,000 years ago. I never knew how crazy we were. It was, it's shaken me. As I've looked out there, it's literally shaken me. I, I didn't know we could be this nuts. I should have been listening to Solomon. He knew. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. The sickest, the sickest, poorest person is better off than the richest, wealthiest king who dies because he's still got hope. He still has an opportunity to seek the Lord and be saved. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their every envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. We better figure out while we're alive. One of the biggest things... In life, as Solomon says, that keeps people from the Lord is they look at it and they say, what does it matter if you go to church or if you don't? If you spend your life seeking the Lord and trying to follow him, and if you don't, bad things happen to the good people and bad things happen to the bad people, so what's the point? And they say, life isn't fair. And they say, I'm out. I'm done. I looked for justice in the judges. They were a bunch of hypocrites. I went to church. They were a bunch of hypocrites. I looked for justice from God in my own life. I didn't find it. And so I'm out. Bad things happened to me. And so I quit. As though that were an insight that people hadn't had already. If you've ever felt that way, and I'm not meaning to be condescending when I say this. If you've looked at your own life and said life isn't fair and it's made you angry at God, you thought you had a new insight. You didn't. You didn't. That's why we've got to think bigger than even our own lives and finding justice from God in these 73 years or whatever we have. We've got to think bigger. We've got to love God more than even our own life. Jesus teaches this, John chapter 12, whoever loves his life loses it. If you love your life so much that you won't follow the Lord unless he makes things fair now, you're going to go to hell. You've got to think bigger. You've got to think bigger than the guy on the bench. You've got to think bigger than the guy up here. You've got to think bigger than what you've experienced in your own life. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hate just means, in this context, it just means loving our lives less than the Lord in comparison to the Lord, in comparison to God. We should hate our life. 
in comparison to how good God is. We shouldn't hate our life, but in comparison to him, our life is nothing. And whoever loves that life will lose it. We need to look to the Lord. Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? He's not dumbing or watering down the message for the seeker, is he? I mean, he's laying it out there. It's not, I've got a pretty good life. I wish Jesus would make it a little better. You know, I got an okay life. I just need some more money, so I'm coming to the Lord because maybe he'll give me that blessing. Or It's not, I got a pretty good life. My family needs a little help, so I'm going to come to Jesus and hope that he helps my family. No, it's, I come to Jesus and I give him my life. And I say, take my life and give me yours in return. Oh, the wonderful cross. I find that if I die, I may truly live. And if life hasn't been fair to you, you're thinking too small. All right, Satan's got you focused on something too small. He's got you too simple-minded. You need to think bigger. And I don't mean to be condescending when I say that because many of us have endured incredible tragedy. And life isn't fair. And if you said that, you're right. My little two-year-old, Gracie, came to me, and her brother got something. She did it, and she said, that's not fair. And I thought, where did you hear that from? She'd never been out of our presence before. We've never said that in our house. God has been incredibly good to us. I've never sat there and said, life's not fair. And yet here she is stopping her foot. But even a child knows it's something in deep within us. Injustice is a real thing. And if things aren't fair in our life, something has gone wrong. And it's good to know that. There's nothing more godly than a two-year-old noticing that something is wrong and saying that's wrong. Life's not fair. And there's nothing worse than a jaded adult beaten down with no more hope says, oh, simple kid, you better get used to it. Life is not fair. And if you ever came to church... Have you ever thought about God and said, I don't have what this person has. I don't have what that person has. It's not fair. You're right. But if you said, I'm going to stop worshiping God because of that, you're wrong. The Bible's got you by 3,000 years. You think nobody thought of that before you? People have been noticing life's not fair for generations. The Bible, whole Bible's about life not being fair. Look at this fairness. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged in the church. Well, that doesn't seem fair. We're the good guys. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. He's dead. There was no answered prayers for him. How fair is that? And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Peter, what happened to Peter? So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, and on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Does that seem fair? You think the Bible doesn't know that life's not fair to you? James dies and gets his head cut off, and Peter gets an angel. You think the church looked at that and said, well, that, I guess we're out. Life's not fair. 
And that's a problem. If you've said life's not fair, you're right. God agrees with you. And that's why he sent his son Jesus Christ to fix it. God is going to fix it. But if you judge God before he judges the world, you've judged prematurely. If you've judged God and said, it's not fair, I'm out, you judge too early because God's judgment is coming and that's the one that matters. Solomon says, this is where he ends. And the end of this matter, all has been heard. Fear God and his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you were hoping for justice in your life and you haven't gotten it yet, and you said life's not fair, or you know somebody who has, tell him about the Lord. He's going to make it right. That's why he came. He's going to bring everything into judgment. You thought it was all worthless. You thought it all didn't matter. You thought it was here one day and gone the next. It was a breath. It was a vapor. It was a bell. Wrong. With the Lord, it all matters. It all matters. And that means we've got a reason to get out of bed every single day. Because every single day, We've got an opportunity to follow the Lord. Our sins will be forgiven because of Jesus Christ and we stand before him. And however we fail that day, we will be forgiven by the Lord. But whatever that we do that day, even if something small, God will bring that into judgment and the evil will be removed and we will get to experience God's pleasure with us for that thing, that day, for an eternity. That gives me a reason to get out of bed every day. That gives me a reason to have purpose every moment. That takes the pressure off. God's judgment is going to matter. Those old Russian authors were all Christian. If you've ever seen those old Russian novels, man, I don't know if anybody's read those things. They're huge. Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, those guys. I read one of those things once. It was incredible. I got to the end of it. He's a Christian. The whole book was about ultimate Christianity. And he poetically sums up God's judgment like this and our life like this. This guy who's had a life that's really been unfair sits there and says this at the end of the book. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. Now, this isn't God's word, but it's a very poetic way to describe what the Bible says. For the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That's a big sentence. But when the Lord returns, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so something, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that something is. That's why it says we have faith like a child. We trust in the Lord that he's going to fix it. I don't know what it looks like to fix it. I don't know how God could possibly redeem all of the things that have happened in this world and maybe to you. I can't imagine that big. I can't think about it. It's beyond me. But God is bigger and he can do it. And that's what we trust in. And it's going to make it possible not only to forgive, but it's going to justify all that's happened. And we're going to see that, and we're going to bow. We're not going to stand there and be like, okay, God, yeah, I guess that's all right. Okay, all right, I guess we'll keep going forward now into heaven, even though all this stuff is back there. 
No, what we're going to see in the Lord's judgment is going to be so amazing as God undoes all that Satan did and takes all evil and sends it all to hell and saves all those who believe in him. It's going to be such pure justice that we're going to have no qualms left no matter how unfair our life was. God's going to fix it. He's going to make it right. And we're going to say, I understand. I understand why you let all those things happen. You were right in doing so. Not just, you know, I guess I can live with it. But God, you were right. You were right because you had a plan to fix it. And the Lord is going to judge. And if you've looked for justice in this world like Solomon and came up empty, whether it be in other people and leaders and pastors and churches, in the events of your life looking for it from God himself and haven't found it yet, the answer is not to give up, but to wait. And if you thought Christianity was a waiting game, it's not. It's a living game. Those who have faith in the Lord and his justice, it changes our life now. We don't just sit here miserable waiting for the Lord to fix it. Instead, our faith in the Lord as we get to know him and trust in him actually changes our days, and we don't go around just waiting for God to fix the evil that has happened to us before, but instead we can start living in victory and confidence now through Jesus Christ. And the question is, what will you do? Will Satan get you to look at the injustice in this world and instead turn to God and say, you're not doing it good enough? Or will God use you to look at Satan and say, no matter what you could do to me, no matter what evil you could bring into my life or have brought into my life, I'm trusting in the Lord. Because what he does lasts forever. And everything apart from him is worthless. Everything you've got, Satan, is worthless. And so you won't deceive me. I'm going to stand in faith. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today, which encourages no matter what we've been through, even the person who's been through the worst evil in this life and says life isn't fair. God, your word has a different message for us today than Satan has which is not that this life isn't fair, but that this life is going to be made fair. Everything is going to be made right. God, as we look to leaders and they keep voting the opposite way. God, as we look to pastors and they keep sinning and failing. God, as we look to you and we say, when are we going to receive justice in our life, Lord? And we experience all of this evil. God, I pray that you'd give us faith to have our trust in you. God, I pray you'd give us the faith not to judge you before you judge the world, but that we'd continue to believe in you, Lord, so that we may see your justice and we may see you fix this place. God, I pray that we have the type of faith that would not just make our lives a waiting game, waiting for that future moment, but that we'd have such faith in you that that future moment starts to break into our present give us victory over the evil we've experienced now. God, as we've got people in this room who can't stop thinking about the evil that Satan's done in our lives. When we go to bed, when we have a free moment, all of a sudden our minds just keep going back there. And Satan robs us of our present and of our joy. 
God, I pray you'd bless us that our faith can grow and our faith can grow to the point where that moment starts breaking through to us and our trust begins to grow and be bigger than that situation and that we can begin to enjoy the gift of the life you've given us now and we can begin to overcome the evil that Satan's done to us no matter how big it is it's not as big as your justice it's not as big as your judgment God I pray that we begin to be living in victory and have freedom 